we come back together this morning. We are uh, embar- continued to uh, travel down a road of, of just unpacking what leadership looks like in Scripture, uh, its characteristics, not just uh, from the traditional texts of 1 Timothy or Titus, uh, which are clearly important in, in delineating the way things are lined out uh, for elders and deacons and leaders in the church, but we, we're looking at some of the narratives and some of the history behind it that creates the expectations that Paul has. Uh, that, that the inspiration for Paul's leadership and encouragement and uh, the training of elders and of leaders in the church comes from an understanding uh, of the Old Testament, comes from an understanding of how Jesus discipled the disciples and how he took opportunity to teach them in teachable moments. And we've looked at the uh, reality that for leadership to happen well, to care for one another, and particularly those called to shepherd us in the offices of elder and pastor and deacon. That we have to have folks who are experienced in being comforted, being confronted, and being called and following Jesus. And they also need to be well-versed in accepting uh, and I'm sorry, I did it backwards. They also need to be adept at extending that comfort, reminding us about the character of God, reminding us that we need to be confronted in the difference between God's love and the way we treat one another and how we want to embody the love of God to our care for one another. And then the, the importance of calling, calling us to follow Jesus, calling us to live in accordance with the reality of who his character and his nature is. And so we've looked at this servant leadership because, of course, as Ben rightly pointed out this morning uh, in preparing us through prayer, that we have a Jesus, we have a God who leaves the right hand of the Father, divests himself of all of the privilege that he might serve his people. The position uh, we will very quickly hear is uh, Advent start, I mean, not Advent, Lent, starts in a few weeks, is it builds towards Holy Week and Monday, Thursday, that, that reminder that Jesus in his, one of his last teaching acts with the disciples is to wash their feet, is to serve even as he leads them. And so we want to encourage within the community of faith then a life and understanding that is marked by what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.21 that we might be a community of faith that submits one to another out of reverence for Christ. It's only in a culture of mutual submission that those who are called can be shown to be exemplars of those characteristics. We don't need leaders who only want us to submit to them. But the richness of what it means to have those who care for us and lead us willing to learn. In Timothy and Titus, there's not a great culture for producing leaders, right? If you look at Paul's warnings about the men and women in those towns, there are some really awkward things, right? I mean, if you go to Titus, he's like, look, you're in a place, Crete, where their own prophets say they're all, the men are all a bunch of lying, no good, 
individuals. And Timothy is being stretched in Ephesus by people who are dividing up the church and who are following false teachers and getting in fights, endless fights, over probably increasingly inane theological issues. They're Greek. They like to argue. They're philosophical. The notion isn't that at some point in history there was this well of unbelievable people to be leaders in Christ's church. We have to realize that what God does is He takes broken and fallen human beings who are part of cultures which run contrary to the characteristics of who God is and still brings leaders out of the midst of those broken and fallen cultures. And it is part of what we need to do then is to recognize those ways in which we need to repent. To have leaders who are regularly modeling and showing us what it means to turn from following the ways of the world or our culture and increasingly turning back towards following Christ. This morning, we'll start uh, by reading first, uh, the the Gospel of John, we'll read the narrative about Peter's threefold expressing of his love for Christ. But we'll also jump uh, to David's addressing the tragedy of his child's loss that was the result of he and Bathsheba's first relationship. All of this, of course, in a desire to unpack what it looks like for broken and fallen human beings to follow Christ, to follow God, and to repent. And that being the basis by which they lead. So this morning we'll start in John chapter 21, verses 15 and following. When they'd finished breakfast, now remember, Jesus is risen from the dead. He started a wonderful breakfast uh, on the side of the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are all gathered around, and now Jesus takes Peter on a walk. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he has said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. We are profoundly blessed, Lord God, 
to be served and cared for, to be created and led by a loving and patient and kind and gentle God. We ask this morning that as we again look into your word and are called both personally and as a people to be people of repentance, to model what it is to turn and follow you, we ask that you would continue to be gentle, patient, and loving because, Lord, it is not easy for us to turn. We need your spirit. We need your word. And whatever is said this morning that is not useful for calling us to follow you, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. The, uh, the great artist, the great craftsman, doesn't always need to have the very best, at least from a worldly perspective, the very best material to make amazing pieces of art. Uh, I'm going to go to sushi because you all uh, graciously uh, gave me a gift of learning how to make sushi. I am a long way from being, uh, well, competent. But I watched a show years ago on a guy who was a master of sushi and had come to New York from Japan and had a restaurant in Manhattan and prized all of the freshest, most amazing, amazing uh, fresh seafood. And everybody, of course, would pay thousands of dollars uh, to just eat at this man's restaurant. And at some point, he lost his love for it because it had become a business and not an art. And he disappears, goes back to Tokyo, opens a shop for like 10 people and uses all frozen fish. And people still can't get in because there's only 10 spots. But he's such a master with the way he cuts, the way he presents, and the flavors he's able to, to coax out of what, from a particular notion, is not the best raw material. In fact, it's not, well, it's raw at that point. But it's true, too, of artists. It's true of uh, a real craftsman and jeweler who can see a stone that maybe doesn't have the initial clarity of, of the world sense of this is the perfect stone, and yet in their cutting and in their placing of it, they find an inner beauty. But it has to be transformed and it has to be remade. And we have a master craftsman who's in the business of reshaping broken and fallen human beings. Of finding the inner beauty in what the world may see as someone who is not ideal. One of the most amazing things about the early church, we're not sure if they were all slaves or the tradition became that you took on a slave name when you became a bishop. But there are a number of bishops named Eusebius. And that is the slave name that we find in the wonderful book that Paul writes to Philemon, to a slave owner. And we find that there are bishops and, and elders in church history who identify themselves with a slave name. Now, why on earth would you do that? Because from a worldly perspective, the last person you want as an elder or a pastor is somebody who is owned by somebody else. That's not a position of power or prestige. There are all kinds of ways in which the world looks for particular characteristics of leadership. And tragically, we know all too many times, not that those people aren't gifted, but that if there is not a spirit of repentance, how often they fall tragically. 
Not because they're uniquely sinners, but because they were unpracticed in the way of repentance. Their gifts became their own strengths. And therefore their weaknesses were left to them as well. Not relying on the reality of what it means to be people being shaped and following a God who rebuilds. Three tools that our Master uses in teaching us a life of repentance and a life that models what Peter is learning in this amazing set of verses. Of course, uh, just to remind you, Jesus, before His crucifixion, said, Peter, you will deny me three times. And tragically, Jesus was right. And Peter had on the night that Jesus was betrayed, in the midst of the pressure of what was happening, denied Jesus three times in the space of that evening. And so the Master gives Peter three opportunities to again confess his faith, and then Jesus calls him to follow. He rebuilds Peter, restores him in the same nature in the way that Peter had fallen. The three tools that Jesus uses that we've been talking about throughout this series is there is comfort, there is confrontation, And there is calling. There is comfort. Uh, God is reliable in His justice and His mercy. If you turn back to the passage in uh, 2 Samuel and you read through. Now this one, you're like, you see, you told a passage about David's son, born by Bathsheba. The child dies uh, and David spends a week praying before the child dies and then gets up washes his face, goes to worship, and moves on with his life. Now, what on earth, possibly, uh, could that have to do with leadership? Well, follow me a little bit here. David, in that passage, just like Peter, has to come to grips with the consequences of what he's done. Peter is annoyed with Jesus Partly because Jesus is pressing in on a wound that needs to be healed, that needs to be cleansed. And in the midst of that, you have to get the pus out. You have to get the sin and death out. And so Jesus pushes, pushes Peter to reflect on and to repeat, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then he has the brilliance to actually confess, you know everything which means somewhere along the lines of, I love you, but I'm weak and fallen and I get scared. I don't love you as well as I want to love you. You know everything, Jesus. You know I love you, but I failed. In the same way, David is a man after God's own heart. He doesn't go out and do his job. You know the story. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. He didn't do his job. And in the midst of feeling fat, dumb, and happy, he was fat and dumb. And he sins with Bathsheba. And then he exacerbates the situation by killing one of his great men to cover up his sin. And he's confronted by Nathaniel, and he repents. And it's amazing and it's wonderful. And then there are consequences, and there are real life consequences. Well, you see, then how on earth are you saying that he is comforted by the character of God 
when part of David's consequences is that this child will not grow up in David's house. Because we see David not just repenting in word but in deed. And he spends the entire week that that child is alive praying in sackcloth and ashes, fasting. Why? Why? Because he knows the character of God, the Scripture says. Because God is a merciful God and He might still be merciful. I don't know all of God's wisdom. I don't know all of God's plans. But I know I have a loving God who is merciful. And again, let's be clear, the punishment here of this child not living long is not punishment on the child. The child gets to go home. The child doesn't have to endure living in the 4th century B.C. That child, as David says, will live for eternity. At the end of that passage, David says, someday I'll go to see him, but he's not coming to see me. Now the best thing is, of course, that someday Jesus unpacks the resurrection. They'll both come home to this planet. But the child is not paying the penalty. The child's existence isn't shortened. The child is still eternal. The child is still living in the presence of the Lord. The child will enjoy eternity. But David, David is robbed of, because of his sin, the joy of seeing that child raised, of knowing that child for the 60 years, 40 years that David may have lived after that. And David is now on his own behalf praying that that child would have an opportunity this side of the resurrection to know his father. To not have to endure the consequences of sin and brokenness. And he's comforted in the character and nature of God that it's worth pleading and trusting in the wisdom of God. David in his repentance pleads with the Lord in verse 13 and 16. The Lord may still be gracious to me. Jesus takes Peter aside to show the love and care. David knows the character of God, understands the reality of what he's done, trusts in it, prays into it. It's the only way that he can get up afterwards. You have to know the richness of the character of God, otherwise those tragedies will destroy you. Leaders go through tragedies, some of them of their own making. Some of them are other people's making. The question is, in following Christ, in relying on the character and the nature of God, do they comfort themselves and you? Just as David instructs his counselors who are terrified that David is going to lose his mind when he finds that the child has already passed. And yet David responds out of the character and nature of who God is. One who is following the Creator. In the same way, Peter is shown the love of God because Jesus slows down enough to restore the man who denied him three times. Jesus shows his love and compassion by coming alongside a broken and fallen leader who has publicly betrayed him and gently restores him. Firmly, painful for Peter. But asking, do you love me? There's probably more penetrating questions that Jesus, or at least more convicting, pointed, humiliating. There's no deeper question than, do you love me? 
Which brings us into the confrontation. Consequences this side of glory. Repentance is not a way to avoid the implications. But God may relent. We can't have leaders who think that repentance is a way to get out of difficult circumstances. Repentance is not a way to avoid temporal consequences for sin. It's simply not. And this is where we often get called hypocrites in leadership in the church, is that if there is a certain level, and again, you know, the most tragic ones of things like an affair that a pastor has, and then they try and stay in their office. And it's not that God can't bring restoration. It doesn't mean that that person won't have other useful things to do. But the reality is that at some point, that kind of of severing of his relationship within his marriage is significant enough that arguing that, well, David slept around and he got to stay king, so if I sleep around, I should get to stay pastor. I'm sorry, I'll write a psalm. No. There are consequences. David didn't get to determine the consequences of, his, uh, of the implications of his sin. He was just called to repent. Peter didn't know if he would be restored. He was just called to repent. It's Jesus who puts Peter back in a position of leadership. It's a God's privilege to keep David in the throne. But neither one argue, nor should we, that somehow the sin itself should be downgraded because I said I'm sorry. Repentance is being confronted by the temporal consequences. And I say this importantly, temporal consequences. Is David's eternal salvation secure? Amen. It's in Christ. He looks forward to the one that will be the son who will sit above him. Peter knows here and in other places that it is not his own righteousness that saves him. And he will not preach and teach that it's your righteousness that saves you, but writes masterfully about what it is to depend upon the goodness of God in the midst of, in First and Second Peter, suffering and persecution. Jesus confronts Peter three times. It's not just comfort, it's confrontation. David has to deal business, do business with what it means to repent and still lose time, some time, with his child. Again, what does it look like for our leaders and those that we have encouraging us within the body of Christ to embrace the full reality of what it is to be forgiven and in so doing, able to confront within us and in themselves the implications temporally of their sin, to not blame God or others for the realities that we find ourselves in, to recognize that God's forgiveness is not the same thing as the voiding, the pain and suffering that we bring on ourselves and others when we fail, which your leaders will and do. Lastly, a call. 
David effectively is called to get up and worship at the end of his time of pleading with the Lord. When the Lord's answer is, no, not this side of glory. You will not know this child this side of heaven. David gets up, washes his face, and worships. Teaches his own confidants and right-hand people about the nature and character of the love of God. The calling in the midst of leadership and as we repent is to continue to follow Jesus. And there are many things in this life, like the loss of a child, like the consequences of my own sin bearing down on me that cause me to want to sit down under a tree and just wait for God to do. But David gets up. In the strength of the Holy Spirit, he worships. And he serves as king. Peter is called by Jesus at the end of our text to follow. To follow. And that becomes a hard road for Peter. He's going to have to deal with his ethnic biases. His comprehension of what it means that Jesus has transformed his faith and even his culture in light of the gospel to make room for every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Peter's going to struggle his whole life with that understanding. He's going to have to repent again and again and again. David hasn't reached the full extent of the consequences of his sin. His reign is tragically impacted by the seeds of destruction he sowed that day when he chose to put his feet up rather than to go and do his job. David's reign becomes a litany of tragedies, even in the sustaining grace of God. Leadership that needs to continue to repent, and he does, and he writes the Psalms that give us some of the greatest courage we can have about the grace of God, about what it means to know the freedom of repentance. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And then I said, I will go to the house of the Lord. I will repent. I will follow God again. Peter is wonderful in his exuberance the rest of his life. Even when he fails, he fails with exuberance. And then he repents full-throated. Even writing that he agrees with and follows Paul. Not a hard easy thing to do after you'd been with Jesus to acknowledge that Jesus was using a man who tried to kill you and your family to bring the gospel to the Gentile. That's repentance. That's following Jesus in his daily life. Peter can give thanks for Paul. It is a call to act Repentance never stops us. It doesn't blunt our ministry. It doesn't blunt our leadership. It doesn't blunt the ability to call sin, sin. It calls us actually to do that better, more graciously, more lovingly. 
And so Jesus takes these three tools of leading and practicing a life of repentance, of comforting, comforting when sin has overwhelmed and coming alongside with his character, with his nature, with his words. He confronts us that we might be freed from our sin, to have it cut out, to have it seared, to have the iron sharpened iron, to have the dross burned off. How many illustrations? None of them are nonviolent about sanctification. Refiner's fire, burning off dross, iron sharpening iron. It is not easy to cut away, nor quick, the sin and death that lives within me. And yet in the midst of that, it is for a purpose and a call that God might be glorified in and through me. He shows himself and his character. We are being shaped by a master craftsman. Our leadership needs to be shaped by that same master craftsman. It is not an option. In leadership, the call is to be shaped publicly. This is why it is so difficult. Why it is not for everybody. Everybody's called to be sanctified. Everybody's called to repentance. Not everybody is called to have their repentance on display. To model. To be known as a repenter. To have our lives marked publicly. There is too often in leadership from a human perspective an unwillingness to repent publicly because of the scandal, because of the loss of power of leadership. Who will trust me if I have to admit that I too am wrapped up in sin or need to be unwrapped, untangled from sin? But the strength of Peter's leadership, the strength of David at his best, is not that he was free from sin, but that he repented, became a leader in repentance. We follow Jesus. The only reason to follow a leader is if they are repenting and following Jesus and not their own way. Because we all follow only one person. We follow Christ. Not the ways of this world, not the powers of this world, not the idols and treasures and hopes of this world, but the one who transforms this world by the servant leadership that he himself submitted to. He became for us that we might follow for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful. Lord, it is a heavy thing uh, to know that so much of our life is a need to again be called back and to answer the question, do you love me? And for us at times to be frustrated, Lord, and say, you know we love you, and yet we know that we often fall. As Paul says, We do the things that we ought not to do. The things we want to do are not the things we do. Lord, by your Spirit, continue to shape and mold us. Though we may not be much to the world around us, we know that in your hands we can be crafted 
into instruments of reconciliation and the glory of God as we turn from ourselves and turn to follow you. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.